0: And on uh, Mark 10, there's this uh, great passage of Scripture. It's uh, 35 through 45. Why don't you shout out? 823. 823. Oh, you said 822, did you? Yeah. Chapter goes over. Oh, there you go. 823. Our brother from Texas. Quick on it, but as I learned, it's now up on the screen. So, Jeez. I thought, how do you, oh, you don't cheat. Oh, you don't cheat, huh? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's kind of the sermon. Hold that, that's a little foreshadow. Uh, if you were not with us last week, we started a sermon series on uh, resolutions. And you know, we make resolutions all the time, and we make them and we break them, and we make them five years ago when we finally fulfill them and we become members of a church. Uh, but we kind of took the saying, what if God was to make a resolution through us? As people of faith, or maybe some of you are searching, you're seeking, you're curious as to uh, what Christianity is all about, Uh, what the Bible reveals to us is that true change, true transformation comes through literally God's Spirit dwelling in us, transforming us from the inside out. There's, you know, micro change, and there's things that we can do as humans, but there's some overwhelming uh, earth-shattering, paradigm-shifting, history-changing transformation that God can do in and through us if we allow God to. So last week we explored what would it look like if God resolved to help us see more accurately, see ourselves, see each other, see God. This week is, what if God resolved to serve through us? I'm going to read for us uh, Mark 10:35 through45. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came forward to him, this is Jesus, and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What is it you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. But Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? They replied, We are able. Then Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink you will drink, and with the baptism with which I am baptized you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. When the ten heard this, they began to be angry with James and John. So Jesus called them and said to them, you know that among the Gentiles those whom they recognize as their rulers lorded over them. but..." Or And their great ones are tyrants over them, but it is not so among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you must be slave of all. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many." That's, my friends, the reading of God's Word. All right. For decades I've, I've kind of had this kind of weird thought that every human interaction Uh, can boil down to one of three things. I want you to consider this. Every human action is either one in which you give or you take or you're forgettable. And in this text, we get the absolute perfect example of an interaction of giving. In this text, we get the absolute perfect example of taking. And we get an example of just complete forgettability. What's interesting is what happens right before this. Uh, If you don't know the text uh, right before this, you've got 12 people following Jesus. They've given their life to him. They're following him. They're curious as to what he's teaching. They believe that he perhaps is something so much more than just a teacher, a rabbi, and they're, they're curious. They're seeing miracles. And in the midst of this, Jesus is beginning to say something that, I mean, if I heard it, I would be startled. And he says something for the third time right before they say this. And he doesn't slip it in between two other, you know, major things, kind of slip it in. He stops and he pauses and he says, I'm going to die. And I'm not just going to die. They're actually, they're going to arrest me. They're going to beat me. They're going to mock me. They're going to spit on me. And though I'm going to die, I'm going to rise up from the grave three days later. Now, I don't know about you, but if I was there listening to that, I wouldn't respond this way. James and John, right after that, say, so Jesus, uh, if we ask you something, will you say yes? (laughs) I mean, just think about that for a moment. Your leader just says he's going to die an awful death. And right there, your response is, I'm about to ask you something. I'm not going to tell you what it is. Whatever it is, please say yes. Will you say yes? Yes. And Jesus, so amazing, He doesn't say, don't ask me for things. He doesn't say that, because elsewhere, Jesus says, ask and you will receive. I mean, press in, pray, be bold in your ask. So Jesus is not saying, don't ask me. So please don't hear that. But He knows their hearts. He's been with them for some time, and He says, well, okay, what, what is it that you're asking for? And they say, put us in power. We want to be on your right hand. We want to be on your left hand. We want to have the top positions in your government when you rule the world. We want to sit in your glory. We want to have power and might and weightiness and significance. Jesus, will you give that to us? I don't think you're that different than James and John. Sometimes I don't think I'm that different than James and John. I mean, think about this phrase. Jesus, whatever I ask of you, will you give it to me? You know, they've been following Jesus for for quite some time. They've been doing things for Him. And it's so natural for us, if we're followers of Jesus, to begin to kind of tally up all the good things we've done for Jesus. You know, I showed up to church. It's been twice this year. You know, I mean, that's huge, Jesus. That's more than the last decade. You owe me. It's easy. It's very… It's so subtle. i got to tell you, as a pastor… It is so easy to slip into the brokenness of thinking that Jesus owes me. And James and John uh, personify in that moment the classic example of an interaction where all they want to do is take. They're saying, give me all of your glory. Give me all of your power. Give me all of your authority. I want to be equal with you, your right hand and your left. I want it all. They're, they're spinning into a black hole-type relational interaction where they just suck everything into themselves. How do you do that? You know, it's so easy, and you know, we're smart people, we're subtle about it. Uh, think about it in your workplace, think about it in your career. You know, when you're trying to, you know, climb up the corporate ladder, when you're trying to get that project, when you're trying to get signed on to that thing, when you're trying to get chosen for that part, you know, it's really easy, it's so subtle, it's so easy to come across in a way that is nice and caring and and good and follow through, when really, under the surface, all we want is for that person to give us that part, to give us that promotion, to give us that thing. I don't think you're that different than James and John. In our, in our humanness, apart from God's transformation inside of us, many of us, we can spiral into that black hole type interaction with other people. Think about it. Every single action, every interaction you have with a human being, whether it's somebody you work with, a neighbor, a friend, a family member, somebody that's checking you out at the grocery store, when you're at the airport and you see the person cleaning the toilets, every single human act, interaction is one in which you either give or you take or you are forgettable. I think the most of us, the majority of us, the majority of interactions, though, that we have with other humans is just forgettable. You know, it's just, a, it's just a, an equal transaction sometimes. You know, we show up to work and we, you know, we do our, you know, work and we punch and we punch out, but we're getting paid for it. So, at the end of the day, it's kind of this mutual, it's, we're not given above. You know, we're not the barista that goes out of their way to, to clean the tables because that's somebody else's job. You know, we're not the DP that's actually cleaning up after catering. We're not doing that. It's just this kind of forgettable interaction. Some of us, you know, we get so distracted in life, whether it's our phones or our to-do lists or we're just kind of self-absorbed or or we're insecure. and We can show up at a meal. We can show up at a life group. uh, We can show up at whatever it is, you know, and kind of be silent and quiet and not really give much. And, you know, we're just kind of forgettable. And where I see that in this text, open it back up, is, is in here. Mark 10, verse 42. It says, So Jesus called them and said to them, You know that among the Gentiles, those whom they recognize as their rulers lorded over them, and their great ones are tyrants over them. And Jesus there, he doesn't even say the names of those rulers. There's another place in Scripture where Jesus describes two different types of people. He's going to separate you into either sheep or goats. He says, the goats are the ones that, you know, they just say, you know, Jesus, we believe in you, but they don't care for the oppressed. They don't clothe those that are naked. They don't give water to those that are thirsty. They don't bring in and shelter those that are living in homelessness. And Jesus says, though you say to me, Lord, Lord, I'll say to you, I I never knew you because what you've done to the least of these, you've actually done to me. You know, in this theory that I have of you either give or you take or you're forgettable, in the backdrop, I also hear Martin Luther King Jr. on April 4th, 1967 at Riverside Baptist Church in New York, he was speaking against the the Vietnam War. At that point in his career, he wasn't speaking out against the government he wasn't bold at that point in his, his ministry and in his preaching. And in that moment, he, he quoted a statement of a group that was sponsoring it. And speaking of the Vietnam, Vietnam War, he says, you know, silence is betrayal. And I wonder if sometimes in our forgettable interactions with others or in our silence when evil is perpetrated or hurt or bigotry or injustice, I wonder if in our silence, maybe in a sense, maybe there's just two different types of human actions, either just you give and you take, and maybe it's the silence that actually is just you're taking because self-proclaimed people-pleaser, the last thing I want to do is speak up boldly. Now how many times have you heard me mention the name of our president in a sermon? Very rarely, right? Very rarely. And I get emails all the time from people saying, you know, w- w- what are you going to say about that? I'm like, well, which, which thing that he said? You know, I mean, was it on Monday or Tuesday or Wednesday? Was it on a tweet or was it a, you know, which? And truthfully, it's not just the president. It's, it's on both sides of the aisle. It's, uh, you know, in other nations. You know, are, what are you gonna, what, how are you going to respond, Drew, to that thing? And if I responded to everything that was said in the world, I, I'd close this up. I'd have to lay it down, and I'd have to say, well, okay, so this thing right here, this is where I disagree with this. And, you know, then I would be doing the thing that God has not called me to do. But in the presence of this text, I have to say something. And, you know, there was remarks allegedly said, and there was, you know, were they said, were they not said? And I, you know, I had some people come up to me after the 830 service who were, who were really upset at what I said. They said, well, you don't know if they really said that. Okay, the bottom line is this. Whether it's our president... Well, it's another leader. When somebody looks at a human being and says that they are not worthy of love, that they are somehow less than, or if you look at a region of the world and says no good can come out of that region, no matter how awful it is, that is so contrary to the heart of God. And the last time I saw in Scripture, people said that about Nazareth. What good can come out of Nazareth? Well, an immigrant Savior named Jesus came from that area. And so, yeah, we can debate over what he said, what he didn't say. But there was people silent in the room. There some people speaking up. And I feel, you know, compelled that from the pulpit, that can we not agree that as followers of Jesus Christ, or if you're not following Jesus, that, that to say that where somebody comes from determines the quality of who they are, to say that that's wrong, that that actually is a, a racist statement or a racist view, we have to agree upon that, you know, and I know I'm in mixed company. I know some of you, you voted for Trump, some of you voted for somebody else, and there's something about psychology, it's called cognitive dissonance, uh, where we want to close the gap between what we believe and how we act. And so it's very natural, if you vote for someone, you want them to succeed. And you can kind of rationalize way things. And and in extreme cases, we can exalt somebody and say they can do no wrong. Or we vote against somebody and we're looking for ways in which it validates the fact that we did not vote for them. And we can actually, to the extreme, kind of vilify somebody as well. We can do that with Martin Luther King Jr., we can exalt him and, and put him a place that he wouldn't even want to be at. We could say that he lived the perfect life. He didn't. But when he and when any woman or man chooses to follow Jesus to allow the power of the Holy Spirit to, to flow through them like a river, that's where really memorable and meaningful and beautiful things happen. And I know that I want to be a person that when I hear alleged statements that I want to first say, okay, remember last week? You noticed the speck in somebody else's eye, but you failed to notice the log in your own eye. You know, I I want to, you know, hear alleged statements and say, okay, how am I writing people off? God, search me. How am I, you know… At first blush, at first glance, you know, I I would say before you, I grew up in Los Angeles, and, you know, I have have friends from so many different regions of the world and ethnicities. I would say, I'm not racist. But the moment I say that, the moment I say, you know, I'm not racist, I would never do that. I feel like the enemy comes in and says, ah, (laughs) I'm going to do it in this subtle way. And it's going to be the subtlest thing because to think that any of us is perfect to think that any of us have arrived to the the absolute perfection of giving in all of our relationships we'd be we'd be denying ourselves so i begin with that i say okay well how am i falling short or in this case how am i being silent how can i be more proactive and then where my mind goes to is how can i pray for that individual and in this case how can i pray for president trump and i'm praying that God would get a hold of his heart, that he would be transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit, that he would experience such a transformation that you would look back and say, is that the same person? How are you praying for him? Because you have no excuse. Scripture says in the book of Romans, Paul, he says we should pray for those in governing authorities. Jesus also says you should pray for your enemies. You have no other option than to pray for him you have no other option than to pray for Him. And we spend so much energy we spend so much energy exalting or vilifying and Jesus is saying, friends, you're spending all this energy. You're spending all this energy on things that don't amount to much. And when Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. allowed God to speak a dream in and through him, it wasn't his dream, it was God's dream for all of humanity through that prophet. That's when powerful things happen. This text ends with the perfect example of what it means to to give. Open those Bibles back up. Take a look at Mark chapter 10. Jesus says in verse 45, for the Son of Man, that's, he's referring to himself, that's a title that we first saw in the book of Daniel. He's taking that title upon to himself. He says, for the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. Now, the Greek word for ransom literally means that there is a, a price that has been paid to set somebody free. In the book of Romans, it says that, that all have sinned and all fall short of God's glory. Danielle, where is that Romans? I did this to you last week. I'm so sorry. You're my go-to. 323. Oh, you got the page numbers and there you go. Maybe you you can help me after the services to get quicker on those verses. Romans 323 says that all have sinned. That literally means to aim for the wrong thing. We all fall short. To paraphrase, we're all in bondage. We are born in this world, and we are enslaved to ourselves. Titus, the book, says that we are lovers of ourselves, that we're enslaved to to idols, to things that we think will give us peace, things that we think will give us hope, things that we think will give us security, whether it's a job or it's health or all these opportunities. You know, we love these things. Every single one of us is enslaved. We're all in bondage. And here's the scary thing is the majority of you, perhaps, disagree with me. And I say that because perhaps some of you are saying, well, I've given my life to Jesus. I am free. I'm not in bondage. No, you're in bondage still. And you're enslaved in the worst way because you don't even know it. In the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul uses the past tense, the present tense, and the future tense to describe salvation. He says, You have been saved, past tense. You are being saved, present tense, and, and you will be saved. He's not confused. He's, he's talking about the beauty and the mystery and the, the magnitude of what Jesus has paid for us to be saved from. Past tense, looks at Christians. You've been set free from the penalty of sin, you've been justified. It's a legal term. God looks at you and says, You're forgiven because of what Jesus paid on the cross. I look at you and say, You're set free. But the Apostle Paul realizes that once we're set free from the penalty of sin, it still has power in our life. He says, gosh, the things I don't want to do, I still do. The things I do, I don't do. This wretched man that I am. And the fancy theological word is sanctification, that we have an opportunity in an ongoing way, confessing our sins to Jesus by reading Scripture, by repenting, which means to turn away that God sets us free through the power of God's Spirit from the power of sin. Now, I don't know President Trump. I've never met him personally. Uh, From what I've read and from what I've heard, he's given his life to Jesus Christ. Now, some people are so confused because they're saying, how could somebody who gave his life to Jesus act in such a way? And Maybe some of you are like, no, he didn't give his life to Jesus because he's acting in such a way. Let me say this. I'm going to assume that he gave his life to Jesus. God looks at him through Jesus Christ, and says, you are set free from the penalty of sin. Now he, like me, like everybody else who has given their life to Christ, still has things in their life that have power over them, that we are in bondage to. And we get to be a church that joins a life group and sees another Christian saying something. They're like, how on earth is that compatible? They must not be a Christian. Oh, no, they are. They're broken like anybody else. And the journey that we get to move forward together, confessing our sins to one another, bearing one another's burdens, encouraging one another, looking past somebody's actions and to see a transformed and a redeemed heart on its journey of becoming more like Jesus, we get to do that together. So church, as we journey together, we've got to acknowledge the areas in which sin has power over us. And don't be freaked out when somebody shares that with you or when you see it. Here's the great news. The Apostle Paul uses a future tense. He says, one day in God's presence you will be glorified. You will be set free forever from the presence of sin. No more death, no more destruction, no more traffic, no more bronchitis, no more fires, right? James and John, what happened to them? Well, before that moment, there was this crazy scene in which they go into a village, they're following Jesus, and in this village it was filled with a group of Samaritans. You've perhaps heard of that term before, and the background of that group of people is that many, many uh, centuries before, the Assyrian Empire had overtaken the northern tribes of Israel, intermarried with the Jewish people, and now there was this referred to as a race of people called the Samaritans. So there was tremendous animosity between the Jews and the Samaritans in the first century, and even before that. There was a lot of racism, a lot of racist statements, a lot of, a lot of awful things that were done. As long as humans have been around, we've done that to each other. We belittle people. We look at the outside, and we, we make judgments, or we, we do things that are so against the heart of God. And so they go into this village, and nobody in that village responds to the message of Jesus Christ. And so as they're leaving, James and John, these brothers… Say, so, hey, Jesus, uh, should, we, should we pray that fire would come down from heaven and destroy everyone? I mean, there's headlines globally around the world where we're, we're wondering, is somebody going to hit a button? What does Jesus do? He doesn't give up on them. He doesn't shoo them away. He continues to show up to them, to love them, to serve them to pour His life in them, ultimately to give His life for them. What happens to James and to John? James, it says in the book of Acts that he was beheaded for his faith, that he was so bold, he was so courageous, so in love with Jesus that he was even willing to go to death. And what happened? There was an accuser that brought him before Herod Agrippa, the the ruler of that time. And all of a sudden, this this guy that, that, that turned to man all of a sudden begins to see James's faith and the beauty of him even worshiping his God in the faith, face of death, and what does he do? The accuser gives his life to Christ. He gives his life to Christ, and then all of a sudden, now he is kind of lumped in together with this guy that he just turned in, and he says, "Well, then I'm willing to lose my life too." Even up to the last second of James' life, he was leading others to Jesus. I can't wait to meet whoever that guy was, who was so bold in his faith, what happened to John? He became known as the the disciple whom Jesus loved. He wrote the gospel according to John. He wrote 1 John. He wrote 2 John. He wrote 3 John. He wrote Revelation. He talks about love more than any other disciple. Absolutely transformed from the inside out, both James and John, through the power of what Jesus did. And what I love about that is that James and John, if you don't know, are first cousins with Jesus. They're family. So different than Jesus. And I love how Jesus was willing to enter into a relationship with somebody so different than himself, and because of that, it was beautiful transformation. Now, some of you are, you know, you're still distracted by this thing, and, uh, you know, some people at home, they, they try on clothes in front of the mirror, and... Uh, This might sound really odd. When no one's home, I put this on sometimes. (laughs) Seven years ago, I was for the second time in Africa. I spent a month of my life in Africa. First two weeks in Uganda in 2007, the second time two weeks in in Kenya. And this trip, I was in Kenya. I was leading a group of high school students, and we were uh, literally walking through, and we stayed in a... uh, a really difficult place to live. Your comments allegedly this weekend about areas like this, and the the slum that it was referred to was called Misery in Swahili, uh, as I was told it meant misery. And in this uh, area, we were sharing our faith, and yet there was already a group of Christians there living there who would come before us. And there's one guy named Thomas, and Thomas was a tailor. Now, you wouldn't think of a tailor living in a slum, would you? He was a trained tailor. He worked with high-end clientele before that in Nairobi. I mean, he could literally work on Rodeo or in Melrose or whatever street you think is nice to go get tailored. And as a Christian, ready for this? As a Christian, as an African-Kenyan man, he decided, he chose to move into that community, to live in that slum, to move into misery, and to be a tailor for the community, to bring uh, worth to people, to fix their rips, to fix their clothes, and to design garments for weddings for special occasions. And so we go into his, his little tailor shop, if you could even call it that. I mean, it was it was minuscule. Like a couple you know, airline bathrooms on a plane. It was just so tiny. And and we spent an hour together, and he shared a Coca-Cola with me. Who knows when that bottle was filled with Coke? It was the best-tasting Coca-Cola I've ever had in my life. It was room temperature in August in Kenya. No refrigerators. It was the best-tasting Coke I've ever had. And in the midst of that conversation, again, for about an hour, I looked up and I noticed a, a garment, and I just he kept catching my eye, and then he noticed me watching it, and then all of a sudden he got up and he grabbed it and he put it on me. He buttoned it up, and I'll never forget, he looked at me and he said, God had you in mind when I made this. And, oh, that's so sweet, and I began taking it. He said, no, 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 it's It's yours. What a beautiful person in such an unlikely place, right? And it wasn't because of uh, where he was born, it was because he had given his life to Jesus. It was the beautiful power of God within him. I have not forgotten that man. I can't wait to spend eternity with Thomas. And when you get to heaven and you're looking for a tailor, look him up. (laughs) You can be just like Thomas. Nothing special about him. He just, he chose to allow the great servant of all, Jesus, to be his Lord, his master. He allowed Jesus to be his everything. And, you know, he doesn't, I'm not saying that he's perfect. No one's perfect. We'll be perfected in heaven but he chose not to allow his surroundings or the environment to determine how he was gonna give in every single relationship. So you have a choice too. And for those who are following Jesus, you have a choice to allow God's spirit to to set you free from the power of sin in your life. And for those of you that don't yet know Jesus, I'm telling you, there is no one who serves. There is no one who gives perfectly like him the peace that you're longing for, the hope that you're looking for, the love and the joy that you're looking for, he says, I give it to you freely. Come, follow me. Let's pray. Loving God, as we respond in worship with our voices, with our hearts, and even as how we uh, leave this, this space this week and follow you, I pray that in this moment we would also give that which you you have given to us. So God, as a church, as we continue to invest in the things that we believe you care the most about, would we collectively as a church give to what you are doing through this church, on this campus, and this city, and around the globe? Would we be people that are bold in giving, living memorable lives for the sake of your love? In Jesus' name, amen.